Sometimes you encounter a home improvement program and it's ordinary. Guided by a contractor, a friend, or perhaps two brothers, the buyers face adversities that limit their budgets and imaginations. They wind up with a home that's perfectly suitable for their purposes. But other times, you may happen upon a builder who yearns for more. A bespoke home with triple-glazed windows and fine mahogany furniture. Perhaps a balcony from which you can monologue. When you embark on the audacious task of evaluating home improvement television, you may just discover the spirit of humanity. And it's time to hate watch with us. And I'm Kelsey. (laughs) It's time to hate watch with us. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Before we begin, I just want to give I just want to give some serious shouts to my co-host Kelsey, (laughs) who wrote the cold open (laughs) that you just listened to. And that we haven't recovered from, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. You're a beautiful tropical fish. Uh, As we alluded to in our opening monologue, we are going to be discussing the finer points of home improvement television, And we are particularly going to be focusing on a couple of personalities. On one side, we've got the Scott Brothers, who are famous for their show Property Brothers, as well as a variety of spinoff shows. And on the other side, we've got Kevin McLeod from the British TV show Grand Designs, which just came to Netflix recently, so now America's blown the fuck up over it. Rightfully so. (laughs) It's true. I'm very excited about today's episode. (laughs) It's going to be great, guys. I'm not saying that Kelsey has a spreadsheet with a table, but she does. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just prepared. Don't you like it when I'm prepared? I love it when you're prepared. Powerful muskox. Muskox. No. It's gone. (laughs) That was tough. (laughs) tough. Uh, Not tougher than a Scott Brothers insurance commercial, though. Ooh. Roasted. Roasted. All right. So we're going to start our episode off talking about the signature shows, like a signature bake, for <laughs> for each of these um, personalities. So we're talking about Property Brothers and Grand Designs. And we're going to segue that, which I learned is not spelled like the device that you ride on more recently than I care to admit. We're going to segue that into... Talking about the the hosts themselves, what they bring to the table, what they don't, <laughs> what their sass level is, maybe some style questions, you know, we'll cover it. So, get ready. Get your home designing suit jackets on. <laughs> your, your bespoke suits of blue tweed. <laughs> Kevin loves that blue tweed. I hear that... If you bespoke your suit right, you don't have to wear a tie. Yeah, I hear that too. <laughs> All of the wisdom of Kevin McLeod. So let's start with the Scott Brothers family of products. All right. 
So the Scott Bros are on HGTV. Some of their spinoff shows might have been elsewhere. I don't know. They are most famous for Property Brothers, a show in which they find lowly first-time homebuyers, and they take them to look at houses, and then they convince them to buy a fixer-upper, and then they fix the house, and now they have a pretty house. And the whole shtick of the thing is that Drew is a real estate agent and wears suits, and Jonathan is a contractor and wears flannel and has Dimitri hair. He's he's not my one true Dimitri. He's probably like my second true Dimitri, but I digress. And <laughs> Gotta have a backup plan. <laughs> it's always best if you can have multiple Dimitris on hand. So uh, Drew helps them buy the house, and they spend the first 15 minutes with Drew and his various vests negotiating and having a hard time getting offers and blah, blah, blah. And then the last half of the episode is all Jonathan in his flannel knocking down walls and shit. Right. And I think if we're talking format, this one is particularly formulaic in that, you know, the premise is as you described, but there's also, you know, they always go to demo day. There's always a problem that comes up halfway through. There's always a miraculous fix to the problem. (laughs) And then they do the like final touches as if they're doing it at the very last minute mm-hmm. before the people walk in the door. You know, it's as it's very, like, it hits schedule. the same beats every single time. My yeah. favorite part of the formula, and perhaps the key part of the formula, is, and they do this in a lot of HGTV shows, but I think Property Brothers, like, really maximizes on it. So they do all of the interviews with the couple. It's not always a couple. It's often a couple ahead of time. And they spend the whole time either agreeing that they don't want to fix her upper or arguing over whether or not they want to fix her upper. And it's all about how they want to move in ready house. And then Drew takes them to a house that has everything on their wish list. And it's in the best neighborhood in Toronto, and it's got 10 pools, and it's 95 stories, and it has a scrapbooking wing, and the couple has a budget of $180,000 in Toronto and is walking around all starry-eyed, and they're so in love with the house, and at some point they make a crack about how they're going to place an offer tonight, and then Drew gets to do the big reveal of the price tag on the house, and it's, of course, wildly over budget, like $3 million. And that's when everything comes crashing down around the couple and they accept that they have to buy a fixer upper. Right. It's mostly my favorite part because it's the first house Drew is showing you and you know that there's two of them and that one of them is a contractor. And so what do you think Jonathan was going to be doing when you bought the first house you found that needed no work? (laughs) Well, also like this show has been on since 2011. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So in 2017, when you were asking, I don't know, the HGTV gods to be on Property Brothers and you're selected, like, you know, the premise of Property Brothers. So the like, surprise that I think they're faking more and more is getting like worse and worse. Oh, of course. Well, it's true in that moment. And then it's true in my favorite HGTV trope of all time, which is the couple arguing in the driveway. Mm-hmm. Those are also getting more and more scripted as time goes on, which I blame on Love It or List It primarily. I think that's their fault. Ugh. But. Fucking Love It or List It. But. The Scott brothers do like them a good couple arguing in the driveway. Oh, of course they do. (laughs) 
One thing that I think they do really well that's my favorite part of Property Brothers is showing the mock-ups of both of the houses before they buy them. Usually on these types of shows, you just get to see the design that they go with. So when you get to see two, it's like a bonus feature, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun. A couple seasons ago, they upgraded to like a 3D version. It's real spiffy. And then it gives you more opportunities to hate watch the people because they choose the wrong house. They always choose the wrong thing. Like, inevitably, you can tell which house they're going to choose because there's the one house that's like ridiculously under budget and so would allow them to use the rest of the budget on renovation so that they could build their dream home. And then there's the other house that's like just out the budget and only leaves like 60000 for renovations. And like you can only do a couple rooms for 60000 Inevitably, that's the one they're going to pick. Right. And that leads me to my least favorite part of Property Brothers, which is they imply that they reno the whole house. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet they only show you key rooms. So either A, they are not renoing the whole house and they're leaving you with like a half-finished home, or B, they don't care about my feelings enough to show me the whole house. (laughs) I did read somewhere once that they do the entire house. I don't have anything to back that up. But but did they do it like shoddily or they don't stage it or is there a reason? Well, I so I also read that all of the interior design that gets done is just for the show. So all of the furniture, all of Jonathan's finishing touches, like that all comes out when the production team leaves. So I would think that they do the reno on the whole house. But I mean, they're obviously not furnishing it because they're not furnishing any part of the house. But... They, they're only showing you the budget and the scope of work for what gets put on the show. Gotcha, and, like, gotcha. I don't know if they decide that ahead of time. Like, once you buy the house, then they start getting ready to do production. Or if they film the entire house and then figure it out in post. Mm. What do you think their, like, timeline is for production on one of those houses? Mm. Construction is usually about six to eight weeks or six to ten weeks. Yeah. They don't tend to go more than ten on construction unless something crazy comes up, which I have to say, I think has given an entire generation of home buyers completely unrealistic expectations for what renovations are like. The average person isn't getting a six-week reno. Right, but it has given them a little bit of trepidation of like, something's probably going to go wrong in my reno. It's true. I do think we as a society are better prepared for bad renovations than we were like 10 years ago. Thanks, HGTV. Mm-hmm. And so the home buying part seems to be the longest. And you can often see the passing of seasons. And so I think like some people do take a very long time. I don't know how much of that is house hunter style where, spoiler alert, guys, there's some amount of the home shopping that is not legitimate, shall we say? (gasps) What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) No, not that. That is like one spoiler I've had to keep as protected information because the couple of people I've accidentally told that to have been very upset to find that out. I mean, it's HGTV. I don't know what they expected. So the other thing is that Drew, they don't just do the show in Toronto anymore. Now that it's a big deal, they do episodes around the U.S. And in the U.S., you have to have a real estate license in whatever state you're in. Drew obviously is not licensed in every single state in the country. And even if he were, he's just the host. Like, he's not actually wheeling and dealing. And so these people are doing the home shopping with a real-life real estate agent who may or may not be provided by the show. I don't know. But then they have to get Drew there 
to do the shots of like walking up into all of the different houses for the house shopping montages and you know so that he can pretend to be negotiating with the real estate agent on the phone and so on and so forth and so timing that out with a real home search it's got to be difficult. I don't know. I feel like they've probably staged it. Mm-hmm. There's no way. I'm quite sure you're right. I mean, there are definitely people who take longer than others. And so I wonder if like the production team gives each couple a window, like you have a year to find a house and we'll touch base with you every three months. Right, right, right. So I had one quick note, specific mistakes that buyers mm-hmm. tend to make on Property Brothers. Yep. I think the biggest one is thinking that they can have it all in zero budget, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's a winning HGTV trope. The one that grinds the Property Brothers gears the most is buying their own furniture or decor (laughs) to add to the home. Oh my god, that is always my favorite. There will be a shot of Jonathan walking up to the site that morning, and one of the people is in the garage with something that they bought at like an antique store or garage sale. Because Jonathan's also the interior designer, right? And the whole thing is about his design. And so he walks in and has, like, a mid-century modern theme, and then someone has, like, an old wooden hutch pulled out of a barn fire. And he's like, what fresh house Right, and they're like, it's really important to me that you use this as part of the design. There was one episode where there was, like, a whole thing with cowhide, where, like, the person decided that they wanted, like, a cowhide chair or something, which is bad on its own, but it had... It, like, was not cohesive with the rest of Jonathan's design, and he managed to find, like, two places in the home to get a cowhide chair and a cowhide rug and just sort of, like, shove them in a corner. That's impressive. It's my favorite. Like, you want to piss off a Scott bro? Right. You bring your own shit. (laughs) Bring your own mahogany furniture. So, speaking of mahogany furniture, shall we give our listeners who maybe haven't seen Grand Designs yet a little rundown? Yeah, I only watched two episodes of the show, so I'm still a newbie. But the basic premise is they start with someone who has some sort of large scale custom home project. And it's sort of like a docu-series. So it's like a mini documentary following the evolution of this build. So they had this one house that was a 10,000 square foot mansion made out of cob, which is like a mud mixture and it's the largest cob structure on earth and so it's following like how these designs come to be what it's like to go through the process what people are having to sacrifice in order to make these houses come to fruition and it's hosted by kevin mcleod who might be the world's best monologuer. Similar in some ways to Property Brothers in terms of formatting but it's a little bit more fluid and simple episodes always open with Kevin saying something lofty in a field that alludes to, like, the theme of the build in general. And usually somehow ties back into how architecture and design is a metaphor for, like, the human spirit. Yeah. And then they spend quite a bit of time at the beginning talking about, like, the inspiration with the builder. Usually they're, like, Mm self-builders, which is always interesting. And they do a good... 3D mock-up of that final product as well. Yeah, I actually wrote in my notes that Grand Designs has the best mock-up of all of the home improvement television. So, like, Scott McGilvery was in the lead for a long time, but I think Kevin McLeod has got it in the bag. Yeah, I think because they just focus on every part of the house and not just, like, the rooms they're going to do or anything like that. Like, that's part of it. So then, like, they go throughout their process, and like you said, it's the docuseries style, so they check in, like, less frequently, Um, 
but they'll come on like concrete day and window window insulation day. They seem to be spaced like six months to a year apart. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you'll see Kevin in a fancier outfit instead of his normal outerwear that we'll talk about later. And there's like a music cue and you know you're going to see the finished product. So then you get to tour the house in great detail, which is my favorite part. It's just like 15 minutes of just staring at the pretty house. While also like waxing poetic about the house. Yeah. And then it always ends with him with like a crane shot and he's either on a balcony or like walking down the driveway. There's always like something equally as dramatic to close it. I guess you could say that like this show speaks to a different type of audience in some ways than HGTV. Like there is crossover, but it's not really there to, I don't know. It's there to like give you some sort of education as well as entertainment. So it's telling you like about a style of architecture or wanting you to appreciate what is happening, like how they're building this house or how they're using concrete to make it look like wood or whatever it may be. Right. The way I wrote it in my notes was, was that like the sensibility of the show was more a deep appreciation for the work and like the poetry of architecture. And I was really channeling Kevin McLeod, but like savoring the outcome and like appreciating it as like a work of art. Whereas like yeah. the, the sensibility, I would say this is true across all HGTV properties, but specifically the Property Brothers is more of that loud American, like hyper consumerist quality where it's like, this house is pretty and nice and we did a good job and we did it fast and now it's your dream home. Go next house. Right. I don't think Grand Designs is meant to be like binged in six hour cycles either. But it still has like a side of sass to it that Property Brothers and HGTV sometimes lacks as well, right. which is important. Well, because at the same time that HGTV is like hyper consumerist, it's also trying not to be in any form serious. Like it's trying to pack as much Lil Higgy in there as possible. Right. Whereas I think Grand Designs is too, just in a more British way where like you can't not be at least a little serious at all times. Right. So it's also, I've seen almost all the episodes on Netflix now, which is just two little tiny seasons. But it seems from that sample, at least, that the design style is often similar in that it's like super, super modern more often than not. A lot of like concrete and glass and it's like occasionally wacky and they'll use like a shipping container or the cob house. But more often than not, it is stark white walls, open floor plan, large floor to ceiling windows and they're all like interesting but if you watch too many of them in a row you're like okay I've seen this style of house 10 times right I feel like to me that speaks to like the tax bracket of the people that are in that are featured in grand designs versus like the socioeconomic diversity of property brothers right right and I think like property brothers is is pretty safe with their design choices like they all kind of they don't always look like they belong to the individuals who are getting the house. It's like, this is like that generic style that we always do and we're going to keep doing it. So it's kind of like if Joanna just slaps <laughs> shiplap on everything, it's like Jonathan just like everything. pukes whatever his weird style is on everything. It's just like very like, it's on trend, but it's not too crazy. Mm-hmm. He, You know, the one thing Jonathan does really like is those like spiky mirrored glass balls. Mm-hmm. There's often a he tabletop like those. with those. How big do you suppose like the warehouses at HGTV that just has all Jonathan's like staging <laughs> shit. <laughs> they just have like an airplane hanger somewhere. <laughs> yeah. This is 
Jonathan's airplane hanger. So one thing I want to talk about with Grand Designs in particular is their production timeline or lack thereof. It seems like because there's always ongoing projects, like these projects can take on average probably three years to be on one episode of the show. It's not like a seasonal thing. It's an investment in time and money, I'm sure. But I think that may be the reason or the trick for not getting canceled because this show has been on since 1999. And at any given time, I would imagine there's five or 10 houses at least somewhere in their midst of being built that they can't just give up on. How have they not covered every house in the UK? There's only like 10 people in the UK, right? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Sorry, British listeners. (laughs) Sometimes they go to Scotland and Wales. Well, that's why I said the UK originally. Okay, but still... There's enough people. Okay, and I'm sorry I'm an American, guys. Whatever. What are you going to do about <laughs> it? Come at me, bro. <laughs> Don't give me any indication to think that there won't be grand designs forever. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's a very small island. So, mistakes that I th- find builders making the most on grand designs. Mm-hmm. The first one is, like, not taking Kevin's advice on something. Just because they earn his judgment. And sometimes it is resolved. But, like, there was the first episode on Netflix that you'll watch. He's obsessed with this floor that's, like, an original floor. And every time he comes back to the house, he's like, so you're going to keep the floor? You're going to keep the floor? And they get rid of the floor, and he's so upset. Aww. (laughs) And, like, he gets over it, and he's like, well, no, this floor is nice, too. But you can tell that, like, you disappointed Kevin a little. (laughs) He's too smart to disappoint, too. Like, he is such a smart human being. He really is. And the other mistake that we see a lot is people either quitting their job to project manage the build of the house or not hiring all the personnel to do their jobs during the build. So like they're going to be working full time and be the project manager and be the budget person and be whatever the cob builder. (laughs) Yeah. In both of the episodes that I watched today, the two only income earners of the family quit their jobs to focus on the house. So in the first one, it was a guy who owned his own taxi company and his wife was a stay at home mom. And in the second one, Actually, I'm being presumptuous. It wasn't clear if the wife worked in the second one. But he, the husband, owned his own construction company and specializes in Cobb, which is why he wanted to build the world's largest Cobb house. And and so both of them, at some point in the build, quit their job. The taxi guy sells the entire company and uses the profits to pay for the house as opposed to taking out a loan. And I was sitting there watching it, and I came home and said to my husband after watching this, like, what, what if I just quit my job to pursue a passion project? They make it look so easy. But also, like, I just want to take a step back and talk about the, that episode in particular, yeah. because it's the most absurd build I've ever seen in any show ever. You think that one was more absurd than the Cobb house? Only in terms of, like, neighborhood politics and, like, <laughs> the, enough. like, social situation that they had to go through and the money they had yep. to pay to do the dumb thing and that the they time did. that they almost created a concrete avalanche. <laughs> right, and, like, the fact that he sold his one business to and, build it and still failed and somehow for a long time. the fact that his contractor, like, went bankrupt or some shit. Yeah, so... This is the second yep. episode, I think, in episode 11, yep. season 11. So I recommend it. Basically, what they do is, you know how in like a traditional, I guess, in London, in a lot of those neighborhoods, there's 
if there's a house um, with a yard, it, the yards all sort of back out into each other in the back. And there's fences that are like pretty high and they go around each yard to divide them off. And these people like picked a glorified like trash heap in the middle of all the fences and decided that was where they live now. <laughs> and so they had to, they had, they dug down underneath people's fences. So they had to negotiate with each neighbor. And there were like 15 of them to take down 17. their fence, dig up their lawn for a year and then put it back eventually. <laughs> and so, just so they could get like one more square inch of land. So that took, it was ridiculous. That took ten months of the total build was just negotiating the contracts with their neighbors so that they could excavate on their land. And so during that time, they go back to talk to the wife, and they show her making banana bread to give to the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> she, she says to her daughter, I, I wrote this down because I like could not even, she turns to her daughter as she's, you know, doing her talking head to the camera talking about like trying to keep the peace and trying to make the neighbors like them. And she goes, are you bringing cakeies to people? And I was like, no, I will not <laughs> sign a party wall contract with you because you just said the word cakeies. <laughs> I mean, mind you, the whole time they were building this house and for, like, years leading up to it, supposedly, they had a family of four living in a studio yep. apartment. Where he was also running his business. Right. <laughs> that is not a situation that well, because he had been, seems worth it. Well, because he had been scrapbooking the stupid house for ten years. Oh, <laughs> God. And that poor wife was just like, I don't want this anymore. Okay. So she... I made the wrong choice. I empathize with that. However, every time she was on camera, she would end up ranting and being like, I don't want to talk about the dumb house anymore. Like, no more talk about the house. But then she still built, like, a multi-million dollar mansion and, like, was super proud of it and whatever. And it's like, how did, how did you not know that that was what you were getting yourself into? I know that, like, you don't want your entire life to become about anything like anyone who's ever planned a wedding doesn't like talking about their wedding while they're planning it. And like people who buy houses don't like talking about buying the house. And so I get it, but like you're the dumbass who decided to spend three years building a house on a trash heap. So maybe don't be surprised after your husband quits his job and works full time on the house that all you have to talk about is the house. Right. But she'd spent like a little too much time in California. So she got influenced by <laughs> she spends, like. 10 minutes of the beginning of the episode talking about how they designed their house the way that they did because she lived in LA for a little while and all the houses in LA have light and she really likes having light in her house and there's a lot of light in LA like more than there is in England (laughs) (laughs) you know they get these things called LEDs (laughs) well the other weird thing about that house was the pool okay one thing about the pool the pool is the only source of heat for a three-story house in England. In the sun. Like, how is how is this possible? It's, like, cold and gray and rainy there. Well, also, it's going to smell like chlorine in that entire yeah, house. Yeah, and they're going to have so much mold. Like, they're already at a mold risk yeah. because it's below grade. So now you're going to put a pool in there? Why not? It's also the smallest, dumbest pool. Like, it looks like a bookmark. Oh, yeah. It's basically, like, a glorified fish tank. And they're like, sure. We can use this for things. gross. I also, so I spent a couple of months in the fall working on a a pool build, is the short story. (laughs) And during that time, I was reading a bunch of reports about 
pool functioning, as it were. And like, I've learned a lot of stuff about chemical feeders and turnover rates and sand filters and the percentage of fecal matter. And the bottom line is that pools are gross. And that is a teeny tiny little pool. And it's so small. And it was kind of green, which I think was just like the material of the pool deck itself. But it was in like a small room. And I just kept thinking about the mold and the chemicals and the humidity. And it was so gross because it's so small. You know what I kept thinking about? What? Was that because they had 15 neighbors, <laughs> they couldn't build any windows that faced the outside into their house, oh but then God. she wanted light. So, oh God, I have a quote from Kevin about that, actually. But I did write that the windowless floor or windowless top floor looked like a sim house. Like, you know, when you get too excited building your house in The Sims, and you put all of your windows on the bottom floor and then run out of money before you can do the top floor. Yep. That's what it looked like to me. Yep. But Kevin was very excited about the windows because they did, like, skylights um, in a bunch of the hallways. And he said something about how the skylights were genius with a view to infinity. (laughs) I love him so much. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. One thing, yeah. one thing I really appreciated about the show's sensibility, and maybe it was this couple in general, but I feel like I got it in the other episode I watched as well, versus Property Brothers and those couples, was that she, the wife talks very plainly to the camera about the fact that she and her husband have been fighting, like having big blow-up fights, and she thinks his life choices are kind of dumb, but... You know, she has no choice but to sort of sit back and see what happens. And they've already poured everything into the house, so they have to make it work somehow. But she's saying all of this, like, very cut and dry to the camera. Whereas the way such things are handled on Property Brothers is, as I've alluded to, through a creep shot of the camera behind a set of blinds looking out the driveway with the couple at the end of the driveway with their lav mics still on magically duking it out and gesticulating wildly at each other. So it's supposed to be like their fight in real life and so dramatic and so tense. Or even if they're not fighting, even if it's just like, oh, I don't know. Like, if we can't have the mahogany mantle on the fireplace, then do we even need a fireplace? Is it even worth it? That $10,000 could go to a jacuzzi tub. <laughs> and what, what you guys missed as I was doing that was me gesticulating wildly as if I were at the end of a driveway. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was just like a noteworthy difference in how the relationship drama is handled. Because like, fair enough, couples are going to fight about buying houses and like, I guess if you were, there's no point in just watching people sign paperwork. So you have to like amp it up somehow. I just thought it was like culturally relevant. Like you could see American sensibilities versus British sensibilities. Yeah. And I think the way they set up their interviews on, on grand designs, they're a lot more organic too. Like they don't feel like they're reciting lines that they're supposed to say. It's more like, I mean, they're obviously prepped, but it feels a little bit more natural and not as staged. Well, yeah, and I've only seen two episodes, but they were different enough that I am assuming this is a trend. But, like, I didn't hear repeated themes other than the fact that, like, building a house is stressful. So each of the wives talked about completely different things, even though they were both building big, expensive houses that were over budget and both of their husbands quit their jobs. They were talking about it completely differently, whereas... As Kelsey said earlier, 
Property Brothers is so formulaic, you can count on the exact same beat coming up every single episode. So I know what each couple is going to fight about every episode, and I know what each wife is going to say about it every episode. I did watch this one Grand Designs episode this week where the wife says no, that she doesn't like like this house design that her husband's come up with from the beginning, Thanks. and keeps telling him that she hates oh, no. it. And he keeps building it. And then they do like the final product and they're in it. And Kevin's like, so have you changed your mind? And she goes, no. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. They made some choices. <laughs> oh, the w- there are some similarities though. So at one point in that first house, Kevin says, despite budget overruns, they refuse to compromise. And that was with regards to the stuff on the inside of the house, like the finishings. And I, I wrote, yep. some things never change. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, somehow shows will just always always have the same thing. So speaking of a thing that all house shows have, <laughs> that was a smooth transition. Let's talk about the the, the humans. humans. The humans behind the show. Let's talk about Jonathan and Drew and other Scots. Small Scott. <laughs> the third Scott. <laughs> Let's talk about Kevin. And, and it'll be a conversation. It will be. So do you want to, I mean, you already gave your rundown of like the general well, yeah, rundown so, of Jonathan and Drew. So, so their shtick is that Drew's a real estate agent and Jonathan's a contractor. What's like minorly interesting about them is that Jonathan is a contractor, an interior designer, and also a licensed real estate agent. So he can do it all. And the one thing that I found very endearing about them when when I was falling in love with them back in the day was that Drew is like very upfront about being like, my job stops at real estate. Like this is the only part I do. He is super happy to like not do anything else. And then Jonathan is the overachiever. Also fun fact, Jonathan is also an illusionist. It's an illusion, (laughs) Michael. And he, I don't know if he still does, but he did for a long time have a standing show in Vegas. And so he and Drew lived in Vegas together. And one of the spinoff shows that they did for HGTV was an entire season long show where they buy this like shitty abandoned house in the Vegas suburbs that had been like gutted after the crash, the real estate crash. And they renovate it room by room, according to the editing of the show. And then he and Drew live there for sure. And then does does the third Scott brother live there? It's like a like a compound yeah, for and the they Scott have like a, family. A massive guest house for their parents who live half the year in Canada and half the year with them. Yeah, so the Scots kind of like come and go. That show, that spinoff was like such a turning point in my relationship with the Scott family, because like the first couple of episodes of it, I found it like somewhat charming that they have a happy family, I guess. It was cool to see their brother and whatever. And then as it went on, I was like, y'all need to make some friends. Let's not forget that they started off as actors before they were (laughs) contractors or realtors. And then they like, this was like a weird plan that they came up with somehow (laughs) to pursue their fame. Well, and they're the third Olsen twin, who's their little brother. It has like a music production company. And like, right, Drew and Jonathan have their own like media production company that the third Olsen twin is part of. I'm calling him that now that he's somehow part of on top of his music production company. And now he also has his own spinoff show called All American Theme Parks. 
because why not? <laughs> he clearly needed his own show. Because his brothers were playing The Sims and he wanted to play Roller Coaster Tycoon. They also have a book coming out called It Takes Two, Our Story. <laughs> and People not Magazine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, the third Olsen twin, like, really got left out of the book deal. And People Magazine describes them as HGTV's resident sex symbols. They are also um, the HGTV hosts with the largest net worth. Oh, yeah? I'm not surprised by that. Mm-hmm. They've got, like, 12 shows. It's true. Oh, my God. Can I read you the description of all American theme parks? Yeah, you can. <laughs> J.D. Scott visits America's best amusement parks in pursuit of thrills, chills, and funnel cake. Is he tall enough to ride the rides? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because it's fair. (laughs) Also, the saddest thing about losing Vine is that Jonathan had a really lit vine channel oh so strong so lit and like a little disturbing more baffling so baffling also fun fact about jonathan his middle name is silver yeah it is (laughs) drew's middle name is alfred in case you were wondering but jonathan's middle name is silver silver (laughs) then silver scott yikes also if you find the property brothers or the scott brothers website you can request a signed item from them, and <laughs> it'll they'll send one back to you. <laughs> so, Just worth noting. So a couple years ago, Kelsey got my mom and I, <laughs> I a signed picture of the two of them, signed in silver <laughs> sharpie. <laughs> Does that mean that Jonathan signed it? He probably forged Drew's signature, yeah. They are just wild. They are wild. What I have always wanted to know about them is, like, they're super fun-loving guys on the show, and they're so painfully adorable when there are children on the show. They're, like, really good with kids. But they both, like, kind of have this... It's going to sound really bizarre, and I know that. But they have, like, dead eyes. Like, their eyes don't, like, light up when they smile, or, like, they always... They just, like, look glazed over at all times. I mean, do you have dead eyes at work, too? Well, it's like, what secrets do you have, Jonathan Drew? (laughs) You saying you don't trust Jonathan and Drew? I I don't trust them. Like, they have dead eyes. Do they have dead eyes in their insurance commercial, too? Yes, always. They've been doing a series of insurance commercials, and I was trying to send them to Kelsey, and then somehow ended up subscribing to a bunch of them, so every day I would get literally thousands (laughs) of notifications. So, like... They are getting plenty of engagement. Good job, insurance. But yeah, they uh, dress up in costumes and dance. And they're basically like like sexy time songs, but to yeah. drawers. Yeah. Like in a kitchen. It's a lot. Oh, here's one. <laughs> um, Jonathan is wearing a, a silver blazer and a black button-up unbuttoned to his chest and is like dancing and the caption is when you finish putting something together, but there's still an extra piece in the box. There's wow. one where they're, oh, smooth out drawers, where they're wearing like sailor costumes. Yeah, that song's been in my head for days. I never listened to them with the sound <laughs> on because I'm smarter than you. Ugh, I mean, it was kind of catchy, I have to admit. Here's one with them in their sailor costumes photoshopped onto a ship. And it says, gotta love that DIY feeling of accomplishment. 
it's as awesome as watching a sunset from our yacht with Drew Scott and Jonathan Silver Scott. Random example, of course. Yikes. That copy, though. Mmm. <laughs> yeah, they... That's tough. They have made good use of their name recognition, shall we, shall we say. They also have, like, a separate musical career. Yeah. <laughs> from their sponsored musical content. <laughs> and it's, like, a mix of, like, country music and then, like, cover it's songs. It's not good. It's not good, guys. It's just so bad. Uh, do you think Jonathan does any singing during his illusions? Ooh. Mm. Maybe he sings the final countdown. <laughs> uh, and then on the, the flip side of all of this, you've got Kevin McLeod. <laughs> Kevin McLeod, the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> Truly. I mean, first of all, his name is Kevin McLeod. Like, let that sink in. But then I took... What a hero. A few quotes as I was watching. Let's hear your quotes. And he he says stuff like, even Kevin's biceps are biblical in scale. It combines Aww. the undulations of Teletubby land with the assertiveness of an eco-fortress. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like an ant standing next to a curly-whirly towering termite mound. I had to rewind that scene like 10 times to get that quote right. I feel I'm so like glad you an did, though. Standing next to a curly, whirly, towering termite mound. <laughs> but the way he says it is like, yeah, yeah, I do too. I do, yeah. Kevin. <laughs> it's like being inside the prow of a great concrete ship. Oh. <laughs> and then he has this one monologue. I couldn't write it down in time, but it's at the end of that that first house in episode two, uh, my first house. And he gets up in front of the house after doing the tour, and he says, you may find this house willful, forced even. And then he, like, literally goes on, he says, like, four more adjectives, and then goes on to say that, like, it is willful and forced because the human spirit is willful and forced. <laughs> right. And it's all, like, it's all a testament to, like, humans. <laughs> humans. Humans. So he visits a lot of the, de- the construction sites. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of feelings about his sensible outerwear. <laughs> and I'm not the only really one. I know that. It's, he, at one point, he's wearing a denim jacket that's flannel lined. And I didn't know yep. that that was a thing outside of New England. Apparently it is. So Old England. I mean, as you can imagine, in the UK, there's often a lot of rain. So he's got his, like, rain boots. He's got his rain gear. He's got his winter weather gear. He's got his, like, brisk sunny day gear. He just says a lot. He spends a lot of time outside. He's prepared. He's so prepared. Well, I was having this really like is. this moment where I was thinking about conversations that I've had with people when they've come to Vermont for the first time, because a lot of people who aren't from New England make fun of our sensible outerwear. <laughs> like this, this is right. feedback I've gotten from multiple people who've come up this far north for the first time, especially because like, we are not a terribly fashionable people at best. (laughs) And so then pile on top of it, the need for sensible outerwear. And so I was like feeling a kinship with Kevin McLeod in that. Like, yeah, you were when you're in a rugged climate, man, you just got to do what you got to do. It's true. (laughs) My favorite thing that Kevin did in the episodes I've seen is there was someone building a house out of four shipping containers. And he was basically going to do two parallel shipping containers Going one way, 
and then two more parallel ones going the opposite way, so, like, perpendicular. So it would make, like, a big plus sign, basically. Oh, my God. And there was some concerns as the process started about, like, the physics of this and, like, can this bear weight in this way because they're all, you know, like, steel boxes. (laughs) And so Kevin decided that the way he wanted to convey this to his listeners and viewers... (laughs) Viewers, he's not on a podcast. I wish he was. (laughs) The way he was going to convey this would be with Kit Kats. <laughs> and so <laughs> he had two Kit Kats going one way and two Kit Kats going the other way. And then he put, he like pushed down on one and it snapped in half. And it was like a very effective way to teach me about the physics of that. But also like, where did that come from, Kevin? It's because he's a genius. Oh, he is a genius. That's amazing. <sighs> So I discovered his Wikipedia page today, and I'm so glad I did. This is where I built my thesis that he is the most interesting man (laughs) in the world. So first of all, he was trained in theater um, design and not actual house design or architecture. And at one time, he was in a comedy ensemble with House. (laughs) That explains a lot. was a pun I wanted to make that didn't really go out, (laughs) so it was too hard. Too hard. You tried. But anyway, so then... Since since Grand Designs has started, he's had a quite an interesting career in the Grand Designs family of products. So there is, and he writes all of Grand Designs also, P.S. Oh my god, really? Yeah. Wild. He writes and presents. He is a one-man show. So he also does Grand Designs Indoors and Grand Designs Abroad. <laughs> he is fluent in French and Italian. So on Grand Designs Abroad, he's a translator for the people who he has on the show often. Oh my god. <laughs> There's Grand Designs Magazine. <laughs> There's Grand Designs Live, which happens twice a year, as far as I'm aware. Oh my god. Yeah, it's it was also an 11-day event. I want to go. one article I found. <laughs> so another program he did for a while on TV was called Don't Look Down, in which he examined the construction of tall buildings while climbing them. <laughs> Which just shows his pure dedication <laughs> and the tenacity of the He's human so spirit. Um, there's books for Grand Designs. He was on Top Gear, apparently. Yep. He did Kevin McLeod's Grand Tour, where he went to European cities and talked about <laughs> the impact on British customs and architecture they had. <laughs> Um, there's a questionably titled Kevin McLeod slumming it, yeah. in which he stays in a slum in Mumbai. It's, yeah, that's not that's not a great look for him. But as I said before, I'm here for a pun every time. <laughs> Kevin McLeod's Man Made Home was a four-part series where he constructed a cabin in the woods. Uh, full Ron um, Swanson. He had... Escape to the Wild, where he followed different British families who had left England and went to remote destinations. I mean, he's had a busy time. He's been There's so like busy. There's like literally 15 books what a that career. he's written. And then I have one more thing that I didn't tell you earlier because I wanted because I was too excited about oh it. God. He trolled people who made a drinking game out of Grand Designs and specifically structured an episode to get pe- an episode to get people wasted. Oh my god. He's my soulmate. 
Right? I want to be his It's best really friend. beautiful. I think we all do. Oh my God, that's... Using the word bespoke is a double shot, just so you know. <laughs> I have to watch that episode. That's amazing. I don't know which one it is, but I'm sure we could find it. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody trolling so hard. Oh, it's so beautiful. I love that shit. Kevin MacLeod. (laughs) Our god among bespoke men. He really is. (laughs) He also did an interview with The Independent, and there were some gems hidden in there, such as... At night I dream of things I couldn't possibly recount. Cesspits, sex, the terror of exclusion, and humiliation. <laughs> like, meditate on that for a moment here. Do we have to? <laughs> it's not fashionable, but I like polished mahogany furniture and, what's this, Susano? I don't know what that is. And sure. water. I also have a huge affection for Pebble Dash and believe a revival is long overdue. <laughs> I believe that too, Kevin. It's not fashionable, but I like mahogany furniture and tonic water. <laughs> like, <laughs> like... <laughs> what? If liking tonic water is unfashionable, I don't want to be fashionable. <laughs> My favorite items of clothing are two bespoke Harris tweed suits, one blue and one green, which I had made especially for filming. They are highly sustainable and warm, and both have waistcoats, allowing me to avoid wearing a tie. I loathe ties. I also avoid the male, what happens at the shirt waistband juncture, question. So sensible. (laughs) So sensible. But I'd like to note that he pointed out that they were warm. He's always sensible about his outerwear. (laughs) (laughs) he's so sensible (laughs) just so wonderful so I have two burning questions for you one about the property brothers and one about Kevin are you ready I'm so ready my first question which property brother is the Kevin oh um that's tough they both have their moments I think Drew. They do. I think Drew. They share an appreciation because for of the well suits? made suits. And Drew right. does a lot of the voiceover and a lot of mm, like the. Um, true. It's not really monologuing the way Kevin McLeod monologues, but he does a lot of the expository interviewing. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Um, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> he does a lot of standing in front of the house and explaining what's happening right now. That's an important quality. It, I mean, it's part of the formula. So it's true. Drew is the Kevin. All right. So my second question is, <laughs> what would Kevin's twin dynamic be like? Oh fuck! <laughs> I bet, I bet that his twin wouldn't be as intense as he is. I think his twin would probably be equally as eccentric and as much of a free spirit. But like, maybe where Kevin is an architect, his twin would be a landscape architect, you feel? Okay. You know? And then the third Olsen twin there would probably also (laughs) still have a TV show about amusement parks just in the UK. (laughs) Most definitely. The third Olsen twin would be like that son who was making art on the cob wall. Yeah. 
house was like so desperate for his son to appreciate the cob. And so when his son was home from college for the summer, he tried to get him to work on the house. And his son actually says to the camera, which was not a great look for him, I would rather be chasing girls in music. Ugh. Blah, blah. He also had like a feather earring. <laughs> so they have all these shots of him like suffering as he pushes wheelbarrows of cobs about and then they cut to him making like sculptures of trees in the side of the cob and he gives this whole speech about how he likes getting to work with the material and like something about how that's a way to pay his father back or something but really he just didn't want to build anymore so he was like hey dad what if i like do some play-doh trees on your house and his dad's (laughs) like okay son and that's the third Olsen twin of Kevin McLeod. <laughs> yeah, it is. I followed that. I would like to think that his twin would also have sensible outerwear, though. Yeah, I think his twin would have to because his twin would also be like woodsy as fuck. Like, I think his twin would just live right. amongst the trees. Like, I think his his twin would be a woodland nymph. Agreed. 100%. <laughs> I mean, Kevin McLeod spends an awful lot of time talking about the undulating countryside. So he clearly has, like, a spiritual connection there. That countryside. That countryside, though. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't say this in the first segment. So I just want to get it in before we wrap up. But I was thinking about things as I was having all these other thoughts about, like, how couples are handled on the shows and, like, how they argue differently with each other and whatnot. And, uh, you know, as you all maybe know, we've been doing a series called Rom-Com Education, where I have been learning how rom-coms work. And a thought occurred to me, somewhat inspired by... Catherine Van Arendonk of Vulture, she wrote an article about how The Bachelor is, like, the rom-com of these are modern times, since, like, rom-coms aren't as much of a thing anymore. So take all those all those things and mush them together, and this is the thought I arrived at. Our home improvement shows the rom-com of these are modern times. Here's my <laughs> no thing, though. They tell relationship stories, right? Because they... They are oftentimes are profiling like newlyweds or people retire a couple who's retiring to Mexico and wants to buy a flat or something. And they start at mm-hmm. one point in the relationship, you know, it's after the meet cute, sure. But for the sake of this story, it's our meet cute with the couple. So it's telling like the story of their relationship through this house. There's one primary conflict which creates funny situations, it creates miscommunications, it creates zany conversation or miscommunications, zany situations. It usually creates one major blow up towards like the middle or end between the couple where then like things become uncertain and you don't know which way it's going to go for either the house or the couple, depending on the couple. And then there's always a big reveal with a happily ever after. I think this is an interesting premise. I don't think you're wrong. (laughs) I like just processing. I just think like, oh, and the other the other quality is that they're inherently aspirational because they're showing you like the house that you would want and the lifestyle that you would want and the cute, happy married couple that you want to be when you go buy your first house. True. Like it's setting expectations for how this whole thing is going to play out for you when your turn comes. Wow. I think you should write a thesis on that. (laughs) 
put it in Or the anyone edit. out there, if you want to write a thesis on this, you should. <laughs> you should. And then please send it to us. We don't have to be co-authors. We just want to read it. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. Do you have anything else that, that we missed? No, I feel like we covered it. <laughs> Um, the last quote that I got from Kevin McLeod that I really appreciated was that, uh, was about the Cobb guy. And he said, he doesn't want to build a Cobb house. He wants to build a Cobb citadel, a utopia of awesomeness. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you have thoughts or feelings about our utopia of awesomeness, (laughs) feel free to send them. Yes. Send those to us on Twitter at HateWatch with us, or send that thesis right along to us to our email, which is hatewatchwithus at gmail.com. You can also find us on Tumblr, hatewatchwithus.tumblr.com, where we have episodes posted. We have um, the curriculum from Rom Conjugation. We are probably going to have um, the monologue from the opening of the show in some form. And uh, we will be having, (laughs) we will also be posting um, knitting projects and project updates for the Hate Watch Knitting Circle. So stay tuned. Perfect. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. It's a very busy Tumblr. And if you haven't yet watched Grand Designs on Netflix, do it. It'll change your life. It's a really, really good show. Like, it's great. Thanks for listening. Bye. Goodbye.